Alicia Holdaway, your 2020 board president. Hi, everybody. Curtis Bullock, CEO for the Salt Lake Board of Realtors. Hello, everyone. Rob Oki, the treasurer for the Salt Lake Board of Realtors. Hi, I am Steve Perry, the second vice president for the Salt Lake Board Executive Committee. All right. Uh, welcome to another episode of the Salt Lake Board of Realtors podcast. Whoever thought we would be doing a podcast about the boring code of ethics? <laughs> um, oh man, if I've learned anything in my service um, as a board of director is just how incredibly important this uh, these 17 articles really are to our profession. Um, you know, the, the const, constant war cry right now is uh, we need to increase professionalism. And uh, at the end of the day, what sets a realtor apart is the are the code of ethics. And um, it's not just a, a bunch of papers that have a bunch of text on it. This is what guides the professionalism and the accountability for the professionalism in our uh, industry. So um, we have decided that um, the, art, the code of ethics holds such an important role in what we do every day that we're going to use this medium of a podcast to really dive into it and what it looks like on a day-to-day -day basis as realtors out practicing real estate. Um, how do we really uphold the code of ethics? So as we all know, um, you're required to take the code of ethics class now one every, once every three years. Previously, it was once every two years. Um, but a class in and of itself is not enough. And uh, this should be a topic of discussion with your broker constantly, um, hopefully some interaction with, with other agents in the marketplace. So we're gonna dive in, we're gonna start a new series, podcast series, where each episode we dive into one of those 17 articles. So today, being the first um, episode in this series, we're going to dive into article one of the Code of Ethics. And um, as such, I'm actually going to start by reading the actual preamble um, of the Code of Ethics. So bear with me as I read through this, but I really think it's important to set some groundwork. Um, Under all is the land. Upon its wise utilization and wide, widely allocated ownership, depend the survival and growth of free institutions and of our civilization. Realtors should recognize that the interests of the nation and its citizens require the highest and best use of the land and the widest distribution of land ownership. They require the creation of adequate housing, the building of functioning cities, the development of productive industries and farms, and the preservation of a healthy, a healthful environment. Such interests impose obligations beyond those of ordinary commerce. They impose grave social responsibility and a patriotic duty to which realtors should dedicate themselves and for which they should be diligent in preparing themselves. Realtors, therefore, are zealous to maintain and improve the standards of their calling and share with their fellow realtors a common responsibility for its integrity and honor. In recognition and appreciation of their obligations to clients, customers, the public, and each other, realtors continuously strive to become and remain informed on issues affecting real estate and, as knowledgeable professionals, 
They willingly share the fruit of their experience and study with others. They identify and take steps through enforcement of this code of ethics and by assisting appropriate regulatory bodies to eliminate practices which may damage the public or which might discredit or bring dishonor to the real estate profession. Realtors have direct personal knowledge of conduct that may violate the code of ethics involving misappropriation of client or customer funds or property, willful discrimination or fraud resulting in substantial economic harm, bring such matters to the attention of the appropriate board of association of realtors, board or association of realtors. Realizing that cooperation with other real estate professionals promotes the best interests of those who utilize their services, realtors urge exclusive representation of clients. Do not attempt to gain any unfair advantage over their competitors, and they refrain from making unsolicited comments about other practitioners. In instances where their opinion is sought or where, where realtors believe that commentary is necessary, their opinion is offered in an objective, professional manner, uninfluenced by any personal motivation or potential advantage or gain. The term realtor has come to connote competency, fairness, and high integrity resulting from adherence to a lofty ideal of morale, conduct, moral conduct in business relations no inducement of profit and no instruction from clients ever can justify departure from this ideal. In the interpretation of this obligation, realtors can take no safer guide than that which has been handed down through the centuries embodied in the golden rule, whatsoever ye would that others should do to you, do ye even so to them. Accepting this standard as their own, realtors pledge to observe its spirit in all of their activities, whether conducted personally through associates or others, or via techno technologi technological means to conduct their business in accordance with the tenants set forth. That's a mouthful, first of all. <laughs> but every time I hear an instructor in a class read that, or I read it, I get some chills. Um, often I think we look past truly the duty that we accepted to the to the public when we became realtors. Am I on my own in that? Anybody else get chills when they read that or hear that? No, it's a great reminder of, of how important our job is. It's it, too many times it's easy to look at as our job of doing just a handful of things. But when you read that preamble, it encompasses such a broad spectrum of what we're supposed to be doing and focused on and whose lives we're involved with. Yeah. yeah. It keeps us organized too, right? So it's not the wild west out there. So it's such an important part of what we do. It really is. Um, okay. So I'm going to dive in and read now article one. And um, I think it's important to kind of clarify and just remind our members that the way the, the Code of Ethics is written is you have the 17 articles, and then within each article, you have a number of standards of practice. And those standard of practices, is uh, those are essentially examples or explanations of how 
the article is, is to be interpreted in how it's applied in our day-to-day -day business. So, Alicia, and there's also one more thing in, in regards to the code of ethics is it's also broken up in three parts. You have the duties to clients and customers, which article one is underneath. Then you have the duties to the public, and then you have the duties to realtors. So that helps also get an idea where the articles are gonna fall under based on what category um, is being addressed. Very good point, thank you, Rob. Yeah, articles one through nine uh, address our duties to clients and customers. Articles 10 through 14 are duties to the public, and articles 15 through 17 are duties to each other, to uh, uh, other, other realtors. realtors. Mm -hmm. So Article 1. Um, Article 1 states, when representing a buyer, seller, landlord, tenant, or other client as an agent, realtors pledge themselves to protect and promote the interests of their client. The obligation to the client is primary, but it does not relieve realtors of their obligation to treat all parties honestly. When serving a buyer, seller, landlord, tenant, or other party in a non-agent agency capacity, realtors remain obligated to treat all parties honestly. So under Article 1, we then have 16 standards of practice. So let's dive in. Anybody have a particular standard of practice that they'd like to discuss? I might just say one thing, Alicia, on this. When Over the years as I've watched ethics complaints get filed at the board, whether it was here or at the UAR, it's not uncommon for, I don't want to say all of them, but a high percentage of the complaints when they would come in would almost invariably mention Article 1 because it's sort of that catch-all article which, as you read it, it says to treat all parties honestly. And then as you start going through all the 16 different standards of practices, like how you said, they, they sort of interpret that and give more context to it. So I've got two or three that, that jump out in my mind, but before I get there, anybody else have anything that jumps out on Article 1? I'll just get, get the ball rolling. The very first thing that comes to my mind is, is so elementary, um, but let's see, which one is it? One-six. One Realtors shall submit offers and counteroffers objectively and as quickly as possible. I can't tell you how many times, as simple as that sounds, it's one sentence, but as simple as that sounds, I can't tell, tell you how many times over the years, especially when I was at the UAR running the legal hotline, I would get a call from a member who would say, Curtis, I don't know if my offer was, was presented and, and express some sort of frustration on that. So have you guys ever run into situations like that where you were one of your agents or you personally had an offer that wasn't submitted and you kind of got the feeling that the, the agent may be holding something back or sort of engineering the transaction to their benefit and not presenting offers. So I've seen it a few times, quite a few times over the years. Yeah, yeah I, I think it comes up. At least they ask the question. Sorry, agents do at least ask the question if offers are being submitted. And, and if we're all... I mean, those that are members of uh, a board, they agree that they have to follow the code of ethics. And so, yes, all offers should be, I mean, they have to be submitted unless 
your client has instructed you otherwise. I mean, if your I mean, for example, the other part of the con, one of the articles that are there, it says once it goes under contract, um, if a, if a client has then instructed once I'm under contract, I don't want to have any other offers. Well, you need to get written authorization from your client for that to happen. If we don't, then yes, all offers, whether we like the offer or not, we have an obligation that we have to submit those to our clients. And you bring up um, an, a good point um, that addresses 1.7 or standard of practice 1-7. And that talks about regardless of a, a, at which point. So even after you're under contract, you, if you receive an offer, you're still obligated to present it. It's all offers, period. Correct. And I would love to, um, you know, interject a, uh, an example that just happened to me last week of the right way to do things. Um, I was representing some buyers on a property um, that was currently listed as backup. And when we scheduled the, the showing, um, we asked, you know, is it worth going to show? Um, how's the backup coming? And they said, you know, buyer and seller, frankly, are kind of at a stalemate. So yeah, definitely go show it. Well, between then and the time we showed it two days later, that contract had fallen through and they had received another offer. Well, my clients wanted to make an offer and the, the, the offer that was, and we kind of came in like sliding in at the last minute, frankly, and um, my clients desperately wanted this property. Well, it just so happened that the, the, the new offer that came in was a sign call and the listing agent was going to be representing both sides. And he immediately disclosed that to me. He told me that he would be, you know, the other offer that was in competition was somebody he would be representing. Um, he would still present our offer, even though we kind of came sliding in at the last minute. And even though, and then he disclosed all the information that was material to the fact that he was representing both sides in the sense of like what compensation he was or wasn't getting. Um, so he went beyond, I think, what would even be necessary to make sure that everything from the seller's perspective was being presented to them objectively. And ultimately, we won. So that was the right way to do it, right? I, and, and I so appreciated the professionalism. And frankly, my clients, it was they suddenly had this positive view of our, our profession and of realtors where they went, whoa, he disclosed that? He told you that? So they were impressed and really um, happy with the fact that we had, you know, all the information. So. Well, what you did, Alicia, you actually described, I believe it's in uh, standard practice one, 112, is that the agent disclosed information that he didn't have to disclose it at first, but if they're asked and with the, with the authorization, then they're obligated to disclose, meaning that they represent, they're gonna represent the buyer, the compensation that'll be offered. So that agent just went forward and provided that information to you without needing to be asked, which, was, which is awesome. Yeah, it goes back to the preamble, right? When, he, when it's talking about your decisions not being motivated by your own financial gain and yet and it, rather being motivated by objectively and fairly representing your client's best interest. So I just felt like it was so, I was so proud of that agent and just what it showed 
for how things can be done really, really well. Yeah, do you want to do another one? Yep. Okay, this one, maybe I should have done it first. It's the one right above 1-6 is 1-5, and maybe I'll, I'll try and say this, say this little story as quick as I can. Um, maybe I'll, let me first read the standard of practice. It says, realtors may represent the seller or landlord and buyer tenant, buyer or tenant, in the same transaction only after, keywords here, full disclosure to and with informed consent of both parties. I saw that phrase informed consent litigated long, long years and years ago. And I often use this little example in my contract class, my Repsy class, where it fleshes out this, this idea of what informed consent means and how that relates to limited agency. Um, that, so here's the facts of that case really fast as I can. In, so there's a property listed for, if I remember right, $2.3 million in, this is in California, I think it was in Beverly Hills, the Beverly Hills area. And at that time, this was back in 2001, the, the home wasn't getting much action, no offers were coming in, time was going by. And the listing agent finally received an offer from someone. And again, if I remember the facts, I think it was about 1.7 million, so quite a bit less than the original asking price at the time. And the listing agent says, well, I think you ought to consider it. You ought to maybe take this offer. Long story short, the seller takes the offer and the listing agent doesn't tell at that time the, the seller that the agent also represents the buyer. And in California, they call it dual agency. We call it limited agency. But what's interesting is on their contract in California, similar to what we have on our contract in Utah, you know, in section five of the Repsy where you indicate who represents who and you can check a box and, and say that you're a limited agent. Well, they had something similar to that in California. And this agent accurately said on the Repsy that in fact, she represented both sides, the buyer and the seller. Um, so that happened and that was done correctly. But what she didn't do until the very end of the transaction when they're at the title company is she finally inserted the limited agency consent agreement where it was signed, but of course nobody ever reads that stuff at closing. A lot of people don't even read the Repsy, right? So usually you have to explain the paperwork that they're signing. Anyways, a couple weeks later, the transaction closes and then shortly after that, the seller is flipping through the closing documents and again, remember, she's a little, the seller was a little upset that they took 1.7 when they listed it at 2.3 and comes across this limited agency consent agreement and where it explains what limited agency means, that the agent facilitates the transaction, is neutral, and you all, you all remember what's in that form. Well, she gets upset, takes it to the the attorney in California and files a lawsuit against the brokerage, the listing brokerage and the agent and argues that while we signed the paperwork, we didn't, nobody told us about it. And while it was correct in the contract that you in fact represented both sides of the transaction, we didn't give our, and it comes back to the standard of practice, informed consent to act as a limited agent. And so that's an important standard of practice, I've seen those, those words litigated in that court. This, 
this case goes all the way to the California Court of Appeals and the court agreed with the seller and said, we agree, you, you didn't get the informed, this, the listing brokers did not get the informed consent to represent both sides and ordered that a, a, a large portion of that commission be returned. And so it ended up being a, a kind of a costly lesson for that agent to, when you do limited agency, make sure you got the paperwork in place and not just signed, but explained to your client. So I've always said, if you get your client to agree to limited agency, have a conversation with them, make sure they understand what it means, have them sign the documents that explain it. And then even after you go home a day or two later, send them an email and say, hey, do you have any questions about um, limited agency, the documents you signed, and make sure that they fully understand it so you don't have that same problem that this, this agent in California had. So that's, that was long, I'm sorry, but that's, it's an important one that I've, I've seen sometimes misunderstood in Utah and some agents thinking, well, I've, I've indicated on the repsy who represents who, so do I need to have a limited agency consent form? And, and we know that you do, so. I think well, two really important things that you said there too is um, the actual explanation of the form. Um, you know, first of all, having the appropriate forms, but then secondly, sending it over for electronic signature amongst a bunch of other paperwork with no explanation does not suffice and is quite a disservice to your client. And, you know, this will come up in future episodes and discussion as well, but same goes for buyer broker agreement and the listing agreement. You know, you, I, I unfortunately have seen this happen quite a few times where a buyer doesn't understand that they actually have an exclusive relationship with their agent because it was just connected to the purchase contract when it was sent over for signature. Right. That is not sufficient. And you are not representing your client well in, in you have to explain the contracts that they're signing. Mm -hmm. so. We're going we're gonna to find out as we go through these articles that there's going to be a lot of things that are going to, you know, this article may apply to that article and, and specifically dealing with, with forms, for example, where, I mean, Curtis, you talked about two parts in section five of the REPSI that's, does address which agent and brokerage is going to be representing buyer or seller. But the one thing that people I think misunderstand is the part about that. It says that this section five is a disclosure that prior written agency has taken place. So when you're talking about, it's not a disclosure. Hey, this is what agency is. That is, that is a prior disclosure that this has taken place. So when you go into, you can say, 1-13, that's specifically talking about um, the, the buyers where, you know, 1-13 is a little bit longer. I mean, there's got five points that are there, but it does say when entering into a buyer-tenant agreement, realtors must advise potential clients of the company policy regarding cooperation. So that's where we have to explain to our buyers how they're going to get paid how, whether that be through the MLS, whether that be through the client, so that should not be a surprise. The amount to that compensation to be paid by the client. So, for example, if you're going to get a buyer broker that has a, let's just say a 3% commission on it, and then on the MLS, the uh, compensation is being offered at 2.5%, 
Well, the buyer is still obligated to make up that difference of, of the half a percent. Two and a half percent will be covered through the MLS, the other half a percent, unless the buyer and the, the buyer's brokerage agree to, to not enforce that part, but they would be obligated to pay that and they are required to know that. Number three, it says the potential of additional or offsetting compensation from other brokers, which is what we're talking about, how they're gonna get paid otherwise. Um, number four, or any potential from the buyer tenant representative to act as a disclosed dual agent, listing agent, sub-agent, which Curtis, you were talking about. And then I think number five is also pretty interesting. The possibility that sellers or seller's representatives may not treat the existence, terms and conditions of offers as confidential unless confidentially is required by law, regulation, or by any confidential agreement between parties. So from that perspective, buyers sometimes have gotten upset that the seller decided to disclose information about an offer to another buyer and the, the buyer's like, I didn't give the authorization to do that. The seller has the right to disclose and give the terms of the contract to whoever they, they choose to. And it's, are we as agents preparing our buyers and making them aware that that is a possibility? We, are, we have a code of ethics says that we have to do that. It's so true, Rob. And, and one more thought to what you said and what Alicia said, that you know, we do use electronic signatures a lot. And it's convenient. It's good. It makes life easy. But I think we get a bit casual when we send a document to our, our clients and just say, hey, sign here, sign here, sign here. Because we all know how that works. We've all done it. You just kind of click sign, click, sign, and nobody reads anything. So I think some of those documents, at least some of the more important, more impactful ones, it's important to make sure your clients understand what they're signing. Because a lot of them, some of them will read it, but a lot of them won't too. So we're the professional, we get paid to do this. We need to make sure our clients know exactly what they're signing. Yeah. Also, I'd like to um, talk about Standard of Practice 1-9, this is a pretty quick and, and simple one, but I think an important reminder that your confidentiality, um, fiduciary duty of confidentiality goes beyond your agency agreement. In other words, once that agency agreement is expired or terminated, you still have a confidentiality due to that client. So, you know, if you had a house listed and it didn't sell or it was withdrawn or whatever, and there was information that you gained throughout that. Now, we're not talking latent defects and things that are exempt from the confidentiality, right? But um, information about that seller or the home or whatever, you can't then, okay, now my listing agreement is withdrawn or expired or canceled. So now I no longer have that confidenti confidentiality. Actually, you do. It exists beyond the termination of that agreement. So just an important reminder. Yeah, that's a really good one. Just scanning through here as well. Let's, let's jump to this. We're kind of out of order. This is in no particular order, but 1-16, access to properties. Listen to what this one says. Realtors shall not access or use or permit or enable others to access or use listed or managed property on terms or conditions other than those authorized by the owner or seller. We're seeing this come up quite a bit 
um, in the last little while. And I think our industry needs to take up, take it up a notch on this and be more professional. So hopefully if you're listening to this, you, you really give this some consideration. Don't access a property unless you have permission, or I should say don't access a property in a way that's contrary to what the instructions are of the listing broker. If they require a call ahead of time or an appointment, don't just show up. I just reading the other day, somebody walked in on somebody and it created a, a really awkward situation. They weren't expecting them. And it just paints a, a, a bad picture of our industry to our clients. So we have, I think when I looked at super last time, there's almost 30,000 lock boxes, um, not all at one time, but there's 30,000 lock boxes in Salt Lake County area. And so that means there's a lot of homes that have lock boxes on them. We've got to really cooperate with each other and make sure we don't go into homes unless or um, with, with, you know, going outside the parameters set by the seller and the listing agent. I would be okay if we spent the rest of the podcast talking about this issue. <laughs> um, yeah. Man, you want to talk about the most simple, I mean, our homes are our havens. And I don't care if it's a vacant listing or an occupied listing, you better treat that property as a private residence, end of discussion. And, you know, we're given this really bold uh, responsibility when we have access to potentially somebody's private home. And it is not something that we can stress the importance and, uh, just severity of enough, I don't think. Steve, you've been quiet. <laughs> Tell me how you feel about this this issue. I think this is one of the number one uh, issues that agents are getting fined for, um, and we're seeing it so much more um, through all our through all our committees and the and the complaint department stuff like that. It, people even vacant homes, like you said, they think that agents think that they can just access. Um, without getting it, you know, unless it says key box and vacant, I still think you should at least inform the listing agent that, you know, you, you want to go through it. I think the, the MLS putting sh the showing time service on there has helped a lot, but then the problem became people aren't waiting for permission. Even through that system, they just thought that just because they asked for permission that their time was going to be granted. And, and so it, it's a vast problem throughout the whole state you know even if uh, you know we have to have the the lockbox system so that we can see who is is going to be accessing it and it's it's too bad that we have to do that I know a lot of rural areas they they use regular combination boxes and stuff like that uh, just to keep people keep people out right and so it's such a problem that if you don't set an appointment and act professional in this manner, that it just makes us all look bad. Uh, let me let me throw one thing in on this. It's, I think this goes both ways, and I know some of our members listening to this will be like, "Yeah, but I, I make the appointment and then nobody responds, and I've got client. I'm trying to set up my day two days from now, and the listing agent doesn't respond." I think it's incumbent on everybody to respond as quickly as reasonably as you can, right? At when you make an appointment doesn't have to be instant but fairly quick so people can plan their showings um, so I, I know that's come up before and and is, is just as important 
Yeah, I think that we want to make um, a note about the mechanical key boxes. It's important to know also that that can impact your E&O insurance. We need to use the super boxes um, right. or, I mean, obviously at the seller's directive, right? We, we actually don't have to, sellers are in no way required to put a super box on there. You are simply required to uh, provide some sort of access at the seller's instruction, right? So whatever that instruction is, is what agents need to follow, period. And yes, we can use CBS codes. I use them on every lockbox I have for this very reason. It's just explain what that is. Sorry. So yes, on a super box, you can do a CBS code and you just choose it in the settings as you, you, you program that box and it stands for a call before showing code. So essentially if somebody unpermitted goes to access a box it's going to make a really annoying sound and ask for that CBS code and you can't access without that code. Well, they would have had to have gotten an approved showing in order to get the code. So it kind of, um, you know, addresses exactly what we're talking about. They're a pain in the butt, frankly. Um, but it's unfortunately, in my opinion, a necessary evil because of this issue. But I also want to remind everybody that this is a code of ethics violation. It can be a legal, like a criminal issue because it's trespassing and it's a division violation. So this is not a small thing. Um, you, at the end of the day, are given the responsibility, a very great responsibility, to walk through private residences, vacant or otherwise. You need to treat it as such and only go at the approved directions of the seller. End of discussion. I, I also want to add that even if you're under contract, you still need to get permission to set up the appointments and to access the box for other family members or whoever wants to see that. That doesn't matter the fact that you're under contract. You still need to get permission to access the property until the new buyers, you know, own it outright. So. Oh my gosh, Steve, that's such an important point. I had this arise a, a couple months ago with an inspector and the inspector went back to the home to grab his radon system with no communication, never asked, didn't coordinate an approved showing. And he had the CVS code because I had previously given it to him um, for the original inspection. And um, I'll tell you what, man, I, I let him have it because it, any time you are accessing somebody else's home, you're trespassing unless otherwise permitted. I don't care if you're an inspector, an appraiser, no, nobody. And like you said, under contract or otherwise, until you're the recorded owners, you don't have permission. I, I would say that, you know, the majority of our members, we have a lot of them, follow this rule. There's only a handful that don't. I don't want anyone listening to this get the, to get the impression that, the industry is failing in this regard. Most of our members are very respectful, follow the instructions, but for those that don't, they need to, need to up their game a little bit. And, and that's why we're doing this podcast. And if you run into this, kindly educate uh, your colleagues and friends in the industry to be, to be aware of this and take it seriously. Because people are stressed enough as it is when they're selling their home let alone having somebody just walk into their house randomly. Some people don't like the idea of putting a, a lockbox on the front of their house. It's like, hey, come into my house. So just 
for, for those that are listening that haven't been thinking about this, give it some thought and, and uh, be careful with it. Yeah, good point. And it's the bad actors that ruin it, right? I, I, you're right. absolutely correct. In the majority of our uh, members are incredible professionals. I think that's a really good point. So that's, I mean, that's article one. I, like I said, we haven't gone over every single uh, one of the 16 standards of practice, but we've hit some high points. Any other standard of practice that anybody wants to chat about before we wrap it up? We could probably go all day, but I think, <laughs> yeah. uh, everybody might get bored listening to it. Those are some of the highlights, I think. Okay. Well, great. We will dive into Article 2 next episode and um, just so appreciate you guys continue, continuing to listen. And um, as I always say, if you have uh, ideas for topics, um, thing, burning questions, let us know. We, we will uh, integrate it as necessary. So hope everybody is staying healthy and thriving and getting back to work. <laughs>